Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. On the program today, we continue our series, This is Our God, with Dr. John Newfeld. We'll look at the topic of God's omnipresence in this message entitled, The Ever-Present Spirit. So let's begin as we go back to the Bible. One of the attractions of idolatry is that idols are so very easy to understand because they're just like us. Yes, men and women have pictured the gods as stronger than we are, but their power is just an extension of power as we understand it. The gods looked like human beings, just a lot bigger and again, a further extension of our size. But the gods also fought among themselves, well, just like we do. They had foibles, and some of them were unpredictable and even manipulative, and some were more benign and even concerned about us, and in that sense, they were just like the varieties of people we meet all the time. Indeed, after a while, we get confused. Are we talking about the gods, or are we talking about ourselves? And that should give us a clue that all we're talking about when we talk about idolatry is an extension of our imagination. But as we've already noticed that the God of the Bible has invited us to ask and answer a question. Isaiah 46 verse 5 says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? And of course the answer is that God is unlike every other thing we encounter and can imagine. Today in our ongoing study of the nature of God, we're going to look at three of the attributes of God. The first is that He is spirit. And from this, second, that he is therefore present to all places. And third, that he is present at all times. I remember a conversation I once had with a pair of Mormon missionaries. I was quite aware of what the Mormon church says about God. The Doctrine and Covenants, which is a Mormon book of theology, states, God is a glorified and perfected man, a personage of flesh and bones. Inside this tangible body is an eternal spirit. Now, that's just like the Greek and Roman gods. I said to the two missionaries in my house, is God here right now? And then I said, you know, there's quite a bit of difference between saying that God has this house bugged and is listening and also has hidden cameras all around than to say God is here. If he is flesh and bones like the Greek and Roman gods, then his limitations readily become apparent. All you have is an ancient idol. Sadly, there are some Christians who conceive of God that way. But what does the Bible teach? Exodus 20 verse 4 gives us the second commandment. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That command is easy to understand. Never make a depiction of God that looks like anything that you find in creation. But why? Well, Deuteronomy 4 verse 15 gives the answer. It says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. Now, the passage goes on to warn us against allowing any conception of God at all, least of all one that looks like a man. When God presented himself to Israel, he had no form. The Old Testament carries this idea forward. In Psalm 139, verse 7, David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Now, I know the idea that God is spirit is directly related to his being present to all places. 
For if God had a form, he would be spatially located, but if he is spirit, this is not so. Now, we're going to come back to that. But notice also that Solomon understood this concept when he built the temple. In 1 Kings 8.27, it records Solomon as saying, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Again, here's an assurance that God cannot be contained in a spatial location, which would be true if he had a physical body. Now, that tells us that the essential nature of God's being is unlike everything and anything he has created. He is fundamentally different than matter or material particles or physicality. God is not like that at all. Jesus said so. When speaking to the woman at the well in John 4.24, it records Jesus as saying, God is spirit. The context of that statement was related to the question of which location was the right location of worship. That was a spatial question, but Jesus gives a non-spatial answer. God is spirit. That means several things. Colossians 1.15 calls him the invisible God. That means he cannot be seen with human eyes. That's also repeated in 1 Timothy 1 verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. John tells us in John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time. And 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has ever seen or can see. That goes even further. It's not possible for us to see God. You know, for most of us, that leaves us with a profound sense of mystery. When Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, we're left scratching our heads and wondering what this can possibly mean for when it comes to God, well, there's nothing to see, that is, with our physical eyes. I suspect we'll have to wait for heaven to get a sense of what that actually means. But one thing is sure, we do not see God and we cannot see God, for there is no physical form to see. If God is spirit, and he is, It means he does not have material existence. We can't even say that God is like vapor or air or space, for all these things are created things, and God is not like that. He's not to be compared to the creation. All we can say is that God exists as a being that is not made of matter. You know, but someone might object. Doesn't the Bible speak of appearances of God? Well, yes, it does. But please remember two features. First, there are in the Old Testament a number of what we call Christophanies, that is, appearances of Christ. For instance, in Genesis 18, God appears to Abraham as a man, and Abraham and God barter about the future of Sodom and Gomorrah. But please remember that Jesus, in a heated discussion with the Pharisees recorded in John 8:56, says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, from the context, it becomes clear that Jesus is referring to Genesis 18. He was the one who walked with Abraham and discussed Sodom and Gomorrah. Or consider Isaiah 6, where Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And then he goes on to explain how he was seated on a throne and the train of his robe was filling the temple. And yet again, in the New Testament, we are taught what happened. John 12, verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, that is, Christ's glory, and spoke of him. 
We need, therefore, to understand this profound matter called the incarnation. Let's go back to John 1, 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, that verse is rich in Trinitarian language. No one has seen the Father, but God in the person of the Son has in a point in time clothed himself in human flesh and has revealed God to us. See, in anticipation of the Christmas event, on numerous occasions in times past, the eternal Son appeared in human form, anticipating the day in which he would come clothed in human flesh. But what of those occasions in the Bible when it speaks of God's right hand or his powerful arm that is outstretched or matters like that? Please remember, when the Bible says our God is a strong fortress or a mighty tower or a rock or a shelter or even an eagle or numerous other examples where the Bible uses metaphors, it helps us to understand God's dependability, his strength, his willingness to defend us, and so forth. See, when the Bible speaks of the essential nature of God, the Bible speaks of him as the invisible spirit whom no one has seen or can see. When the Bible speaks of God's saving action in our lives, it uses metaphors to help us to grasp how God is involved in our lives. But underlying all of this is the warning of idolatry. Don't look at the creation and imagine that God is anything like that. Beware, says Deuteronomy chapter 4, lest you lift up your eyes to the planetary bodies, or look down to the earth at the fish and the animals, or look sideways at fellow human beings and conclude, I will think of God in that kind of an image. When we think of God, we must not think of him as a great big man with white hair looking down at us, for that is not God. The God who truly exists has never been seen, nor is he like what we have seen or can see. And when we come back, we'll see why this means that at each moment, we are never out of God's presence. As we study the topic of God's omnipresence, it's important for us to understand this foundational attribute. God is never confined to time and space like humans are. Further, he is absolutely unlike anything in the created world. Well, we're just beginning to uncover how essential this is to getting a right understanding of God. After the break, Dr. Neufeld helps us to see how acknowledging the ever-present spirit affects not only how we think of God, but also how we live. Thanks for listening. Have you ever had a burning question about something you've heard on the program? Have you wanted Dr. Neufeld's opinion on a biblical or theological matter? Well, you may have a chance to get your answers in our upcoming Q&A series with Dr. Neufeld beginning February 29th. For one week, we'll be selecting your questions from listeners right across the country on air. So send us your questions today. You can email us at info at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. If God is spirit, it must mean that he does not have spatial dimensions. You know, when Paul was in dialogue with the thinkers and philosophers and religious leaders in Athens, he was talking about the nature of the one true God. I'm quoting Acts 17, 24 to 25. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now skipping ahead to Paul's conclusion found in verses 27 to 28. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. That would mean that not only is God's spirit, but that he transcends space and he is present to all space. None of us have ever been out of God's immediate presence. Every action we have taken, every open and secret activity have been performed in God's immediate presence, even though we might not have been aware of it. We live and move and have our being in him, that is, before him or in front of him at all times. Now, this, I hope, will create some dissonance in our minds. It's been a number of years ago now, but I still remember the day uh, when I made up my mind I would no longer wear a tie in the pulpit. You know, instead I wore a pair of dress pants, a nice shirt, sports jacket, but no tie. I remember a dear brother sending me a scathing letter. Would I appear before the king or queen in that fashion, he asked. How could I justify this casual approach when I appeared before God in church? I tried to gently respond by telling him that I was appearing before God first thing in the morning when I was in my pajamas, staring at my sorry sight of my face in the mirror, brushing my teeth bleary-eyed with a rooster tail sticking up from the back of my head. I told him that as far as I know, I have never been out of God's presence, both in formal moments and in my worst of times. I then tried to explain when it came to church, I was not dressing for God. I was dressing for people, and as far as I could tell, in the setting in which I lived, what I was wearing was entirely appropriate to my culture. I don't appear before God in church. In Him, I live and move and have my being. I live all of life in His presence. But again, we have dissonance here. What of all the times that a worship leader has said, let's enter into God's presence? See, how can we enter the presence of Him in whom we live and move and have our being? And here's the technically accurate way of putting it. We might say, let's become aware of as we worship the presence of God. It might feel like entering God's presence to us, but in truth, we are entering into a consciousness that we are living our lives before God and that awareness is sometimes so overwhelming as it might be when we worship with others that it seems so formidable that we are overawed at his presence. That's why David wrote in Psalm 139 verses 8 and 10, If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand hold me. Now, we need some time to take this thought in. Taken as it stands, it means that God is there if I go on a business trip to the far side of the earth and he is there when I enter into a prayer room with a group of fellow believers. He is there. Furthermore, God is as much present in heaven as he is in hell. You know, see, in trying to grasp this, I think Wayne Grudem provides us with an excellent analysis of the fact that while it is true that God is present at all places, the way in which God acts in different places is different, and thus the impact or the effect that we feel of God's presence, well, that varies vastly. You know, first of all, we must notice that in one sense, God is present merely to sustain all things. 
See, Colossians 1.17 tells us he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or as Hebrews 1.3 says, of the Son, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So seen in this way, God is present to all places in the sense that he not only created all things, but that all things depend upon him for their moment-by-moment existence. And so his presence is a necessity for the existence of all things. Nature does not, nor can it exist apart from him. We must never view the laws of nature functioning in a mechanical way so that we imagine that God simply created all things and now it runs on its own. It does not. The reason the nucleus of a molecule holds together and does not fly apart is because God's active presence holds it that way. Second, sometimes when we speak of God's presence, we mean that God is present to bless. That's why, for instance, Israel was told in Exodus 25, verse 22, that the Lord is enthroned on the cherubim. That is, he makes his presence known on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. He reveals himself in such a way that Israel becomes the beneficiaries of his mercy, his grace, his loving kindness, and his great acts of salvation. You know, if we extend this idea further, we should get a picture of heaven in which the manifestation or the revelation of God's presence is so strong that his people stand under the full exposure of his glory and greatness. But sometimes when we speak of God's presence, we can think of those times in which God is present to punish and demonstrate his displeasure and wrath. When Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, or when Proverbs 15 verse 29 says, the Lord is far from the wicked, it does not mean that God suddenly becomes less than omnipresent. It means that God has removed his hand of blessing or that God has removed his favor. See, the language of separation communicates that God's grace is not available. God is present to punish. So here's what we know of God. He is spirit, present to all places, but the way in which God acts varies from place to place. God may designate a place as he did with Moses in front of the burning bush and say, this is holy ground. And he may designate another place as he does with the lake of everlasting burning and say, this is the place of the outpouring of my wrath. But David's words that he can never flee from God's presence always holds true. In him we live and move and have our being. And here's the secret. If you've become reconciled to God through the death of Jesus, if you receive his offer to repent from your sins and trust in the cross, the reality is that you can't flee from his presence, and that's the best news you can hear. But if you make yourself a rebel to his will, the news that you can never flee from his presence, well, for all of eternity, will be the most horrifying of all realities. But God will never cease to be God. Our response to him will not change his fundamental nature. And we, for our part, have no greater issue than the issue of the ever-present reality of God. Now, before we leave this topic, let's also consider another reality. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, your God. Or Revelation 1.8 declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You know, physicists tell us that time and space all occur together, that time itself has to do with the motion of objects in relation to one another. 
That would mean that before God created the universe, there would have been no time. Time, like everything else we have come to know in the universe, is the creation of the one solitary God, and God is not to be identified with it. God, therefore, does not have a succession of moments as we do. Think of it this way. God is present to all spaces, but God is not identified with those spaces. He is not created matter. He is different from the creation, but he is present to the creation. The same is true with time. God is present in all times, but God is not to be identified with time. His being transcends time. Isaiah 46, 9-10 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. John, this series continues to bless my heart and teach me so much. Uh, But as you were talking, I was thinking about the implications of what you were saying. Yeah, we talk about the fact that it brings comfort and peace to those that believe, but it does bring a sense of fear as well, that God is everywhere. He knows all things. He's in every place. He's exactly where I am. Yeah, I, I would encourage uh, listeners who, who are thinking about you know, learning how to meditate on the attributes of God, that we think about for a while what it is that everything that we do is done in the immediate presence of God. In Him we live, we move, or have our being. So we think about every event that happens directly before Him. I think that does change the way we think about everything. So Ben, I think you're right. I mean, it can provide huge comfort, uh, especially in those times when I'm hard-pressed or when I'm fearful about something that happens. I am living in the direct presence of God. But of course, if I'm carrying on in rebellion and, and doing things that I know displease God, I am doing that directly in front of Him. And if we think about our sin that way, that is exactly how we should. And that should bring this sense of sobriety about all things that we do and choose to do, as well as things that we think. But in the end, please don't ever miss the fact that our God is gracious, and, uh, and especially to those of us who are repentant in his presence. We are never out of the presence of God. What an overwhelming thought when we consider the implications of that truth. For those who follow Jesus, it's a truth that brings comfort and peace, and yet an awareness that all of our thoughts and actions are ultimately accountable to Him. Perhaps today you've received a better sense of our God, who is present everywhere at all times, yet He is present in different ways, as Dr. Neufeld has explained. So let us continue to reflect on the power and greatness of our God, the ever-present Spirit. Join us again tomorrow as we discuss the topic of God Almighty. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. These days, you can get an app for just about anything. Well, last fall, we introduced a brand new app for Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again. Now you can download them free and listen to all of our Bible teaching programs and more right on your mobile device. Whether you're listening to Dr. Neufeld's broadcast series or Phil Calloway's daily dose of laughter and stories on Laugh Again, there's something for everyone. Not only that, but with the app, you can read the latest blogs, watch ministry videos, connect with us on social media, and much more. So don't wait, download and start using our apps today. The Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again apps are available on the Apple or Google Play stores. 
For any more information, you can call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.